podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you're going to get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And be sure to add our podcast, Sagas of She, in How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. Hello and welcome to April's After Dark. I'm Emily. And I'm Gemma. This month we're going to be looking at dark tourism. Now because this is a topic I really enjoy, Emily has been kind enough to let me write both parts. In part one, we're going to be looking at what dark tourism is, the different types of dark tourism and the moral questions which surround it. Then in part two, we will be looking at what Sharon McDonald has termed difficult heritage. Now, for disclosure, you might hear the name Sharon McDonald a lot and might have a slight issue. I mean, we're one step away from a, you know, restraining order at this point. I managed to work it into every essay I wrote for my MA. I mean, it kind of became spite by the end of it. It did. It got to the point where even in class I was told to read other things. Didn't you just end up finding ones that she'd written with other people so you can be like, look, it's not actually just her. Yeah, pretty much. There's always a workaround. Anyway, for those of us who don't know, what is dark tourism? Sometimes referred to as thanatourism, grief tourism and morbid tourism, the term dark tourism was first coined in 1996 by professors John Lennon and Malcolm Foley and refers to the visiting of sites associated with death, disaster and destruction. So so concentration camps, battlefields, places like the Grand Zero Monument in New York, Chernobyl and the Killing Fields in Cambodia are all dark tourism sites. It is often also applied to abandoned places, ghost towns, ghost stories, cemeteries, prisons and anything considered macabre, mainly because there isn't a better term for the visiting of those sites. Is it like a new phenomenon? The practice of visiting sites associated with death, violence and disaster is almost as old as travel itself. Early examples include the, ga- the gladiator games in ancient Rome, viewing public executions and sites of warfare. In fact, by the beginning of the 19th century, Waterloo Battlefield was one of the most visited locations in the world, and some, myself included, would add pilgrimage to that list. The pilgrimage is in visiting sites of religious significance, yeah. Yes, that kind of pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is one of the oldest non-economic motivations for travel and was the only form of mass travel until the early modern period when the Grand Tour became popular. As many of the sites visited were, quote, associated with the death of individuals or groups, mainly in circumstances which are associated with the violent and the untimely, they were the original dark tourists. Take, for example, Canterbury Cathedral, which houses the shrine to St Thomas Becket, who was murdered inside the cathedral by the Knights of Henry II. The site of his shrine was began to attract pilgrims almost instantly after his death and continues to be a popular visitor attraction today. And it's impossible to put a number on the amount of people who have travelled or will travel to the site of the crucifixion in Calvary. And it isn't just Christians. In Cambodia, the killing caves of Phnom Penh Sampia draws thousands of visitors a year. Located in Western Cambodia, the caves contain remains of victims of the Khmer Rouge regime. So the victims would have been taken to the top of the cave, executed, and then just thrown into the cave through a small opening. Today, there is a memorial 
built next to the stairway filled with human bones and its golden reclining Buddha statue. Between the Buddhist temples which surround it and the human remains, the site attracts different types of tourists, some who have travelled for spiritual reasons, others for the dark history of the site. Furthermore, whilst traditional religious pilgrimage was undertaken by those hoping it would bring them closer to the divine and help them in their pursuit of healing or forgiveness, its meaning has evolved to include travelling to sites which symbolise, quote, nationalistic values and ideals, disaster sites such as battlefields, sports arenas and disaster zones. This means, in many places, the cultural or dark tourist, if you will, outnumber the faithful, which, as we'll see in a bit, lead to issues in how sites are marketed and managed. It's such a big topic. I've only read very briefly about it, but it encompasses so many different things. And I think it can get really confusing really quickly. Okay, so what kind of sites qualify as dark tourism destinations? Five sites connected with dark tourism have been outlined by Professor Seaton. Museums which showcase death or symbols of death in some way. Two, sites which allow visitors to, quote, relive the horrors of history, such as battlefield reenactments. Three, travel to witness public deaths, although as public executions are really rare in today's society. This is a less common example. But in the past, it would have included activities like going and watching the gladiators or traveling to watch public hangings. Number four is memorial sites such as graveyards, crypts and interment sites. Number five is travel to sites of individual or mass death or tragedy. This includes the graves of famous people, homes of mass murderers, battlefields and sites connected with genocide. Okay, so that covers a lot of places and examples. That's because there are lots of different types of dark tourism and some that come under the umbrella of dark tourism aren't actually dark tourism. Okay, so so what are the different types? We're going to start with one of the most popular forms of dark tourism, which is Holocaust tourism. And this involves visiting sites associated with the Holocaust and Hitler's final solution. So labour camps, concentration camps, mass graves or museums such as the Anne Frank House. However... World War II battlefield sites are not part of Holocaust tourism, but come under the heading of war tourism, which is a separate area of dark tourism. Next, we have genocide tourism. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Gemma, when I book a holiday, I look for a nice beach or a city filled with history, not genocide. And I agree with you. I tend to plan my holidays around how many churches there are to visit. But as these sites, quote, encompass many of the mass tragedies throughout history, they are popular places to visit. As such, sites such as those associated with the Holocaust, the Armenian Genocide in Turkey, the Hattu massacres in Rwanda, and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia all recorded an increase in visitor numbers pre-pandemic. You then have war tourism, which involves visiting sites associated with war. And this can be civil wars or world wars and includes travelling to watch reenactments such as those held at Gettysburg, visiting the cemeteries of Normandy or the war memorial at Elephant Pass in Sri Lanka. And there are travel companies which solely offer battlefield tours. And there's a subset of tourists to this who aren't really dark tourists, more thrill seekers who travel to active war zones. Who does that? Who thinks, oh, summer holiday, active war zone? Yeah, I don't see the appeal of that one myself. No. Next, we have the Cold War and Iron Curtain tourism. So this includes sites like the Burning Wall, Checkpoint Charlie, 
the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, the secret nuclear bunker in, La- in Liganti, Latvia, atomic test sites, and for some, anywhere associated with being behind the Iron Curtain. We then have nuclear tourism, which is sometimes referred to as atomic tourism. And this is the visiting of sites associated with nuclear technology, researching and testing, which is the visiting of sites associated with nuclear technology, research and testing, nuclear explosions and accident sites. So Hiroshima, Chernobyl and the Bikini Atoll test site in the Marshall Islands. Next, we have grave tourism, which is rapidly growing in popularity. And this involves visiting cemeteries or graveyards looking at the graves of famous people or just to see the many different monuments or crypts you find. Sites such as Highgate Cemetery in London and the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in LA even offer guided tours. And then have medical dark tourism, which is all about the history of medicine, barbaric looking medical implements and yucky things in jars. So the kind of place Emily would drag me to. Now, this relates to places like old operating theatres, plague towns, sanatoriums or medical museums with human specimens. So places like East Grinstead Hospital, the Holloway Sanatorium, Body Worlds in Amsterdam and the Bangkok Forensic Medicine Museum in Thailand. We then have cult of personality tourism. And this is sites with connection to serial killers, cult leaders and tyrants. This covers everything from Jack the Ripper tours, overnight stays in the Lizzie Borden house and for some even visiting North Korea. Next, we have supernatural tourism, which is a little confusing as not every instance of supernatural tourism is dark tourism. So sites connected with the witch trials that occur throughout Europe and the USA, such as Salem, are dark tourism, but places that are just haunted are not. Lastly, we have grief tourism, which involves visiting places of tragedy in the immediate aftermath. Examples include visitors to Ground Zero and Firehouse 10 in New York, after the 9-11 terror attacks. Ground Zero received an estimated three and a half million visitors the year after the attack, which is more than double the number who visited the World Trade Center before the attack. Another example is Soham in Cambridge, which was visited by tens of thousands of visitors who were drawn there because of the murder of two young girls. Visitors came from all over the UK, and while some were there to lay flowers like candles in the local church or sign books of condolence, Others simply come to gaze at the town. It's definitely a bit of a strange topic, isn't it? Like you get such a mix of people. So you said the things that sound like dark tourism, but there aren't. So what are some of those? Yes, dark tourism has become somewhat of an umbrella term for anything macabre. And that's mainly because there isn't a better term to define these places. However, just because they come under the umbrella, it doesn't make them dark tourism. And this includes supernatural tourism, as in haunted houses or abandoned places. Disaster tourism, which is visiting places that have been affected by an environmental disaster. This could be man-made disasters such as the Exxon Valdez oil spill or natural disasters like the devastation caused by Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. We then have doom tourism, which is traveling to sites that are potentially doomed due to natural or man-made causes and therefore won't be around for long. So the Everglades in Florida, Australia's coral reefs, and many would add Venice to that list, sadly. We then have Soviet tourism. Now, as with many of the terms 
this one is a bit complicated because just visiting somewhere like Kiev, for example, is not dark tourism, but visiting sites associated with the USSR's role in World War II, such as the site of the Battle of Stalingrad, would be dark tourism. We then have red tourism or communism tourism, as it is sometimes called. And again, this is site specific. So red tourism refers to visiting places related to communism. And as it is supported by the Chinese government, it's most prevalent in China. But because it's kind of supported by the government, the way some sites are represented puts a positive spin on communism within the country. However, this becomes dark tourism when sites are in countries still under communism, such as North Korea. Lastly, we have heritage tourism, which again is a catch-all term. And within it, you have cultural heritage tourism, which is the most popular and involves visiting sites of cultural and historical significance, like castles, churches, and sites of natural beauty, like national parks. So this isn't dark tourism. However, tourism to discover your own heritage can be dark tourism, especially if it involves, say, a trip to Auschwitz or Ground Zero or the killing fields of Cambodia. Are all the sites that are classed as dark tourism kind of created equal? No, within dark tourism, attractions or experiences are measured by the, quote, extent to which both a fascination with death is a dominant consumption factor and the supply is, is purposefully directed towards satisfying this fascination. And these are divided into four shades. So you have pale tourism which is tourists with a minimal or limited interest in death visiting sites unintended to be tourist attractions. So say you went to Highgate Cemetery to visit the grave of Douglas Adams. Because you're a fan and you're interested in his life, this would be pale tourism. Next is grey tourism demand, which is defined as, quote, tourists with a fascination with death visiting unintended dark tourism sites, followed by grey tourism supply, which is sites which are essentially established to, to, quote, exploit death, but attract visitors with some, but not a dominant interest in death. Lastly, black tourism, which is, in effect, pure dark tourism, where a fascination with death is satisfied by the purposeful supply, supply of experiences intend to satisfy this fascination. So during the 9-11 attacks, uh, Flight 93 was hijacked by terrorists. When passengers and crew attempted to take back control, the plane crashed in Somerset County, Pennsylvania. A local farmer took it upon himself to offer tours in which for a fee, he would take tourists to the crash site. And this is an example of black tourism. I mean, it's still it's still sounding extremely complex. Like the fact that you have kind of, you know, like your sliding scale as to how dark your dark tourism is as well. <laughs> but I guess that makes sense, doesn't it? Because... People are drawn to these sites for different reasons. Yeah. So if you have Jewish heritage, you might visit somewhere like Auschwitz because of a personal connection, whereas you or I would go for an academic, or for a more academic reason. Yeah. We wouldn't have, yes, we'd be emotional, but it would be a different emotion. Yeah. I mean, when I did my archaeology course, we went round a cemetery which was a very odd thing to take a class of people to go and do. Um, but that was also for academic reasons. But I guess in a way that's probably some form of dark tourism as well, because we weren't, we were looking at how people buried their dead, how they did their monuments, their graves, all that kind of sliding scale of things. I don't know, it's weird. 
to like consider something that you did like academically actually fits within the topic yeah and some things like battlefield tourism you, you wouldn't think was like I think we've kind of become a little bit numb to it maybe mm. like you wouldn't think that was dark tourism you'd just think it was history you know yeah. in some respects it might even be local history I guess it's that like loss of life aspect that pulls it in mm, definitely but yeah it's definitely very wide-ranging as to what is included yeah so much kind of comes under the topic of dark tourism you realize like when you first hear the the term dark tourism you think oh well that doesn't apply to me mm. then you look down the list and you know I like to visit churches so I walk around cemeteries a lot and I'll, I'll take pictures of unusual graves that's a form of dark tourism yeah albeit a pale version you know I visited battle sites that would be on the list I visited you know museums with human remains or weapons of war so yeah. it's you kind of realize how prevalent it is when you start to look into it more yeah I guess it's just not advertised as being oh come to this dark tourism site well, it's growing i mean there are whole companies which just offer battlefield tours there are companies which do graveyard tours and not just around big graveyards like local ones and that's grown especially um that's become more popular i think in lockdown especially in the uk or might be further afield but i've noticed it has become more popular in the uk yeah I mean, cemeteries are pretty interesting. Yeah. A tragedy happens. How soon after a tragedy does like a dark tourism site open? It isn't a set amount of time and it varies from place to place. For example, Auschwitz was converted into a museum on the 2nd of July 1947, just two and a half years after the camp was liberated. The Ground Zero Memorial in New York was completed in March 2006, less than five years after the attack. And the Rwandan Genocide Memorial opened its doors in 2004, 10 years after the massacre. Then you have other cases that are almost instant, such as the case of the SS Morrow Castle, named after the fortress that guards the entrance to Havana Bay. The Morrow Castle launched on the 23rd of August 1930 and quickly became popular as it offered a way to legally consume alcohol during the Prohibition era. Four years later, on the 8th of September 1934, the ship's captain, Robert Wilmot, suffered a heart attack and died in his bathtub. His death passed command to the first officer, William Worms, and disaster soon followed. At around 2.45am, fire broke out in the first class waiting room and quickly spread owing to the captain's indecision the sos was not sent for an hour by which time owing to quote design faults and questionable crew practices the ship had lost all power and was fully ablaze despite the ship's position close to the shore rescue operations were slow and ineffective of the 549 passengers and crew on board 137 died making it one of America's worst and most controversial peacetime maritime disasters. Quote, driven by the wind, the smouldering wreck with numerous victims still aboard drifted onto the shore of New Jersey's Asbury Park, where it immediately became a tourist attraction as people flocked to see the wreck spurred on by newspaper and radio reports. Special excursion trains from New York and Philadelphia were laid on, and it's estimated that up to a quarter of a million people travelled to view the wreck which according to press reports at the time created an almost carnival-like atmosphere 
postcards were printed, souvenirs were sold, and radio broadcasts offered first-hand accounts of the scene on board the wreck, complete with lurid descriptions of charred corpses. Despite a proposal that the wreck should be permanently moored at Asbury Park and kept as a tourist attraction, it was towed away and sold for scrap after less than a year. It seems really odd that there's no kind of like given time between it becoming a thing. Yeah, I mean, some of those instances are a lot quicker than I would have thought. If somebody had said to me, you know, how long after liberation was Auschwitz made into a museum, I would have said 10, 20 years. Yeah, I never realised it was so quick, especially considering it's taken a long time for people to kind of come to terms with what happened. The fact that the turnaround on that becoming a museum was so quick kind of shocks me I would definitely have thought it would have been more like 10 or more years I think it shows that even then people knew it was knew it needed to be preserved Mm. because there is as I'll talk about a bit more later that there is or there are some who would rather it was burned to the ground yeah and something else put there but then there are others that say well if we destroy it people will say it didn't happen Mm, very true so why have they become so popular at these sites firstly we have to remember that travel is not a modern phenomenon from the beginning of recorded history people have moved around the world to search provisions safety and religion as travel has improved it's allowed people to travel for another reason enjoyment now eric law suggests that there are three factors responsible for the growth in pleasure travel Quote, the availability of cheap aircraft at the end of the Second World War, the increasing prosperity of many people and paid holidays. These improvements have made travel quicker, easier and available to more people. As such, more people visit these sites and as they become more popular, people share their experiences with friends or followers on social media, which, as we'll see in a bit, is part of the moral question. And as such, more people then want to visit. Secondly, tourism at its heart has always been linked to social status as people seek to emulate and better others by traveling to unique places such as the burning gaps at Varanasi in India or the killing fields of Cambodia and this could be less motivated by fascination with death and more about the status of having visited these particular places or in some aspects of dark tourism visiting somewhere dangerous and living to tell the tale for example El Salvador in the past was considered a dangerous place for tourists to visit Those who did would proudly return wearing their I Survived El Salvador t-shirts. Next, mainstream media promotes these sites by, quote, transmitting events almost as they happen into people's homes around the world. Think about the coverage 9-11 received and continues to receive in the media. And so this has kind of coincided with this rise in so-called armchair historians who want to visit these sites they've seen on TV for themselves. As time passes and new generations want to visit the sites where their families suffered, such as young Jewish families visiting concentration camps to connect with their personal heritage. And this has like shot up, especially with this rise in, in people wanting to trace their family history. And finally, there is morbid curiosity and voyeurism. I mean, we're all guilty of rubbernecking at accidents on the motorway. And Tim Cole argues that, quote, there can be little doubt that an element of voyeurism is central to Holocaust tourism. It is the ultimate rubberneckers experience of passing by and gazing at somebody else's tragedy. Of course, that isn't the case with all dark tourism sites. Those who visit, for example, the Taj Mahal in India are mostly drawn there because of its kind of iconic architectural status, 
rather than its function as a tomb. So why are the sites themselves important? There are a few reasons. Firstly, tourism and the revenue it generates is important to countries. In 2014, the tourist industry was worth 7.581 billion US dollars. With projected year-on-year growth, by 2025, it's estimated that the tourist industry will be worth over 11 billion US dollars. Now, this has seen many countries move from traditional economic practices to focusing on tourism. However, this comes with risks, as tourism revenue can be affected by natural disasters, economic downturns, political uncertainty, and as we found out in the last year, plague. As such, countries need a reason to make people want to visit, which they do by creating a place brand, which takes into account tourist trends, the identity of the country and the country's unique aspects, and markets this to potential tourists. As the trend of packaged holidays focused on sun and sand continues to decline in favour of more meaningful tourism, these sites are becoming more and more popular as attractions. Secondly, as we'll look at more next week, more and more countries are embracing their difficult heritage, which makes these sites important, especially when used to educate audiences on the past horrors in an attempt to ensure the atrocities witnessed at these sites never happen again. A prime example of this would be the Anne Frank House Museum. And this leads into the final reason, and that is the stories, however awful, matter and need to be told and remembered. So then the dark sites are marketed to tourists in that way? Yes, and as more people visit, more sites are then marketed to draw more visitors. This ranges from small-scale operations such as the Pennsylvania farmer who we talked about earlier who charged $65 per person to take a flight 93 tour to companies which focus just on battlefield tours and websites which list dark tourism sites around the world and tell people how to visit. Of course some dark tourism sites were never meant to become attractions. Their creation was almost accidental with people being drawn to them because they're famous or associated with a person of infamy so I guess like Whitechapel and the Jack the Ripper tours would fall under that category. Yeah, it definitely brings up a lot of issues when you start to really think about it. Well, I mean, all countries need tourists. We've, we've seen that. Yeah. Because there is a knock-on effect. It's not just the country that gets revenue from tourists. You know, you, it, you've got small hotels, you've got restaurants, you've got... Um, souvenir sellers local tour guides who all rely on tourist money to survive if if these sites are what they've got you can see you if you take the emotion away from it you can see how they're prime business opportunities yeah definitely not to sound callous no yeah it's very difficult i think I guess that's another way of looking at it. It's not just dark tourism. Some people call it like difficult tourism and you can kind of understand why. Yeah. And as more countries embrace their difficult heritage, you know, it brings new tourists. Like um, <laughs> to quote Sharon McDonald, she talks about this uh, idea of skipping parts of history. So if somebody said to you Nuremberg and the first thing that springs to mind is the Nazis, you wouldn't be alone. That's what a lot of people would jump to yeah but Nuremberg was so much more than that it was like it was a racetrack and it was had concerts and 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 good things that need to be embraced as well 
you can't mm. just skip over the Nazis and pretend it didn't happen. So as you embrace this difficult heritage, it's going to draw a new class of tourists to these sites. Yeah, definitely. Of course, as the sites become more and more popular, the more moral questions arise. How so? Well, as I mentioned, for many countries, tourism is becoming increasingly viewed as a way to diversify and boost the country's economy. And as such, it requires making it a place people want to visit, which is achieved in part by marketing these sites. But this leads to many questions about whether it's ethical to develop, promote or offer them for touristic consumption. For example, there was a significant debate surrounding the construction of the viewing platform at the Ground Zero Monument, because this enables the casual visitor to stand shoulder to shoulder with those who are there to mourn a lost loved one they're marketed they become tourist attractions and as such they become places of dual purpose which if not managed correctly can create an unpleasant experience for those with an emotional connection and create a dissatisfactory visit for tourists as well as causing irrevocable harm to the site which in extreme cases can see them closed furthermore to cater for tourists some sites have built eateries and gift shops which helps visitors have a pleasurable experience and provides needed revenue to help the sites remain open and financially viable however some would argue that it's in bad taste and can lead to the sense of place being lost and this is a very difficult balance to maintain another difficult balance is the behavior of those who visit whilst you want people to have a good time and feel welcome Things like taking selfies, which are fine in theme parks and on the beach, are condemned if many of the sites associated with dark tourism. What are the positives that are associated with having people visit these dark tourism sites then? Firstly, as much as I hate to say it, money. And not just for the country, as we were talking about a little bit before, individuals too rely on tourist income. It's not just big companies and corporations that build their business model around tourists, it's local whose livelihood depend on them too so hotels tour guides souvenir sellers taxi drivers restaurants all need tourists to survive secondly it's impossible to fully appreciate and understand places like cambodia like nuremberg like poland without knowing about their difficult heritage and the events that shape the country and its people therefore visiting these sites will make you quote a better tourist and a better person lastly many have argued that places such as concentration camps should be raised to the ground but the counter-argument is that by keeping them and allowing people to visit, it ensures the lessons from the past are learned and as such never repeated. I know this isn't always the case. We have seen too many genocides since the end of the Holocaust. But especially for younger generations, these sites are a visceral reminder of the horrors beyond their living memory. I think the brilliant Culture Obscura blog puts it best. Quote, Essentially, dark tourism is important because in an ideal world, no new dark tourism sites will ever be added to our dark tourism bucket lists. Okay, so on the flip side, what are the negatives? There seems to be three main points of controversy. First, those dark tourists, and I'm using this term lightly, who visit sites such as active war zones like Syria, aren't really dark tourists. They're just thrill seekers on wombats. I can think of no polite term to describe somebody who thinks going to an active war zone is a good idea, even if you are doing it for the gram. Secondly, there is this idea that, quote, dark tourists derive some kind of pleasure from these sites. And obviously this is difficult to unpack because, yes, most will enjoy their trip, but not in the same way you would enjoy a museum or a theme park or an art gallery, but because they might have been able to learn something to 
they might feel like they've paid their respects and perhaps in some way they are ensuring that those killed are remembered rather than it being some sort of sick and twisted pleasure. And lastly, dark tourism isn't actually the problem. The problem lies in people and their behaviour, especially today with the selfie culture and the need to prove that they were there. Now, this is problematic for a number of reasons, not least because it, quote, moves the focus from the tragedy and the victims, who can often no longer speak for themselves, onto the person visiting. So in 2017, the Grenfell Tower in London caught fire, killing 79 people. Almost instantly, thousands travelled to the site. And while some were there to genuinely mourn and pay their respects, others were condemned for taking selfies. Okay, so do we think that selfies are ever okay? Personally, I don't think so. But as there's now an an academic term for people who are drawn to these sites, surging marketing them to tourists and social media is continuing to grow, there might come a time when it's seen as acceptable. I mean, we don't know what the people who were visiting Waterloo Battlefield were doing. I'm sure they they commemorated their trip in some way. Mm. So as social media evolves, maybe it will become less frowned upon. I can't see that happening anytime soon, though. No. So what other behaviours are problematic? So tourists who visit Varanasi in India have been known to take pictures. And this is actually forbidden. However, the site is quite complex because as well as these death-related rituals and ritual performers, it's not uncommon to see local workers and just locals drinking tea, reading the newspaper and engaging in casual activities. So you can see how somebody who's on a tour being talked to by a tour guide, watching people do their day-to-day business, wouldn't understand why it's not okay to take pictures. But we have to remember that this is a sacred ritual and not a photo op. Next, there's been a criticism of visitors picnicking in front of places like Auschwitz. And this is, again, a difficult one to unpack because it's now a dual site. And if people have spent their day there, they're going to want to eat and drink. But it's also seen as disrespectful to the memory of those lost. And this is what makes these sites so difficult to manage. As we talked about before, not everywhere should be visited, active war zones especially. I I can't believe that even needs saying. Then there is a debate about how soon is too soon to visit these places. As we looked at the SS Morrow Castle and Grenfell, people were arriving immediately. And this feels too soon unless there's a personal connection. But if you wait too long... Does the site lose something? And this is a debate that's still ongoing. I don't think there's a concrete answer to any of these issues. And lastly, people damaging or removing things from sites, such as people taking stones and bricks from Pompeii or carving their initials into the walls of outfits. I mean... It is weird because you don't really know how you should act, I think, sometimes. Like, you want to be respectful, but when, like, a site becomes, like, this whole dual usage thing, it's quite difficult. So it's like, like, when we've been to churches before we walk around the graveyard, you know, like, we try and, we've both done it, we both try and avoid the graves because you don't want to step across someone's grave because it seems disrespectful. But that's not a dual-use site. That's a graveyard you kind of already know, I guess, how to react in a graveyard. Yeah, I mean, when I wrote... So I wrote my dissertation on religious sites being tourist attractions. And 
that's almost easier to unpack because religion has rituals Mm -hmm. there aren't necessarily rituals in places like Auschwitz or the killing fields and you know it's difficult because you might have one person who's there to mourn Mm. next to a group of school children who are learning yeah and they're going to be loud and excitable because they're out of the classroom yeah is it acceptable for children to run around whilst visiting outfits it's difficult it's so I, I would not want to be in charge of managing one of these sites definitely not and I mean we've both had to sit through the very creepy film that we were shown oh yeah on our MA that was basically like a peeping tom watching people walk around Auschwitz and I guess in a way it kind of was interesting to see how different people did act I think we should clarify that people didn't know they were being filmed it was almost as if somebody was just standing in the bushes with a camcorder it was very much peeping tom yeah definitely voyeuristic Mm -hmm. but it was interesting to see how different people acted but I do think as we move further and further away from the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. The emotion lessons, almost. You kind of I don't, I don't think more detached. Yeah, people and desensitized almost. Yeah, because oh, it was like so long ago. Not, why does it affect me? Yeah, I mean, at that point, it's not like your grandparents' point in history. It becomes like your great grandparents and your great great grandparents. So you become more and more detached you have the same reverence visiting the Colosseum which is arguably a dark tourist site Mm -hmm. because of the death of gladiators as you would visiting say ground zero yeah because it's closer to us because we remember seeing the news footage because we remember that like we're bombarded bombarded that sounds like we don't want them but because there's documentaries and things about it it's more emotive than something that happened thousands. hundreds of thousands of years ago. Yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Like taking a selfie at the Colosseum doesn't seem as bad as taking a selfie outside a slave plantation, for mm. example. So where is this cut of when do things change? And I, I have no answers. I don't I'm very sorry. I don't think we're ever going to have one because I think it's quite personal. Like each person will think of a different cutoff point being that acceptable cutoff point. Definitely. And I think it depends on your level of personal attachment to a site as well. Mm-hmm. Like we've both read extensively about the Holocaust and and so I feel almost more emotional about it than somebody who's never read anything, only knows the basics from school. Yeah there's going to be a different level of what you take from these sites as well yeah yeah it's very confusing and the waters are very muddy with it i think we're not doing the tome anymore but if anyone wants a cheat sheet of the terms just let us know on social media or in the comments or via our website and i'll be happy to put something together well you know just jeremy sharon mcdonald reading list all that I'm not, I'm not sharing my books, my precious. <laughs> so as I hope this has shown, dark tourism is not a new phenomenon. People have always been drawn to these sites. Despite its longevity, it's a complex issue that's going to be debated for many years to come, especially as tourism continues to grow and behaviours and what, we, what is socially accepted changes. 
So you've listened to us and now we would like to know what you think. So it's over, over the next few days, we'll be popping up the following questions onto social media and we'll share the results with you in the next podcast. So first question, have you ever visited a site associated with dark tourism? Are you planning to visit a site associated with dark tourism? Do you think that selfies are always bad at dark tourism sites? And do you think that dark tourism is morally okay? What are your thoughts on those answers? I mean, I have visited sites of dark tourism. I probably would also plan to, because, I mean, we want to go to places like Highgate Cemetery in London. So we will always end up at dark tourism sites. That's because you're dark. I'm, I'm not going to that anatomy museum where they have stomachs that in preserved because of poisons I, i'm not i'm not i'm not i'm not you have to like lure me in with um pez dispensers and comics <laughs> sharon mcdonald books yeah just like line them up <laughs> and cups of tea it would 100 work that's the scary thing i mean the selfie situation i think it is very difficult on that one because it is that point of where you cut off where it's okay and that if you're there because you have an emotional pull to it or you're there because you're kind of there to tick off a bucket this place it's very difficult to know whether or not photos in general are okay I mean I went to a cemetery and I took lots of pictures and it was for coursework and I felt a bit icky about doing it because it's people's graves but that's just me personally and morally okay I think yes Places like Auschwitz, other concentration camps, killing fields. I think we very much need that in your face reminder of what humanity is able to do. It's that thing if you forget history, it just repeats itself. Yeah, and also this idea, um, maybe more, maybe this is something we'll look at more next time when we look at difficult heritage, but history should make you uncomfortable there is no country on earth that has not committed some atrocity. And mm-hmm. we in England are no different, oh. you know, slavery, colonisation, what we did to the Irish. I think we're probably some of the worst, let's be honest. A hundred percent. And whether you call it wokeism or just admitting these things, I think the more we do that, it can only be a good thing personally so coming in part two we're going to be looking at difficult heritage which is a continuation of dark tourism but looks at the topic more from the point of view of the countries and sites themselves so until next time take care of yourselves and each other